There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow, science, science and, and superstition. You've entered the, the fifth dimension. dimension. The latest series from the Consequence Podcast Network will open the door into Jordan Peele's new revival of the Twilight Zone, and it will go as far as the limits of the mind itself. Subscribe to the fifth dimension. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh, All in the name of Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. That is a mouthful. And if you were listening last week, you'll know that the Langoliers had a mouthful of this pod as we were cut off short, leaving this week to be covering the miniseries. That's right, we're going to be covering that old Langoliers miniseries, Dan, Lara, and Justin Return. So without further ado... The clock is ticking. All right. Well, the countdown is on to um, when we get to zero, the three of us know that we will never have to talk about or watch the miniseries that is 1995's The Langoliers ever again. How do you feel about that? Pretty good. Excited. I'm excited, too. I'm actually kind of excited to talk about this miniseries because it is it is definitely one of those so bad it's interesting to talk about. Not yeah. not so bad. It's good, but there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah, you gotta like purge it with conversation. Yeah, I think dissecting bad film is more interesting than going through bad literature because it's the visual it's component. A, yeah, you know? it's a tediousness of reading and just not being engaged. Or at least with film, like you know, there's it's something to look at. It's not just the, there is. And there's a lot more to criticize too. Like yeah. you said. <laughs> well, well, it's we, also we, we, with film too. I will say there's a lot more people to blame when it goes wrong. There Whereas is the book. You really only have Stephen King and his editor, the film. I mean, there's presumably scores of people involved and we'll mention them. We'll mention many of them to blame in this. Um, we mentioned this earlier that this was a follow up to the stand, which is this enormously successful 1994 miniseries in ABC. It had followed up the Tommy knockers, which was not that successful, but it was also an ABC miniseries. Like, Laura, like you said, like this was like event television at the time where every year, basically, you're looking forward to seeing what Stephen King movie would be adapted next. And this is a huge deal. I, I was looking around. I, I'm not sure why the Langoliers was the choice. I, I can only assume the rights were much cheaper. It was it was only a, like a four-year-old book by the time they went into production on this because there was obviously a number of books they could have adapted, you know, or short stories or something that could have been done, but... They figured this story would be good as a two-part miniseries. Two parts. Two parts of full two-hour movies, basically, two of them. And I feel like um, the miniseries format is usually so great for adapting novels. This is one of the few novels of Stephen King's that I think could have easily been made into a 90-minute movie, and it would have improved it. I think I agree 100% because you could definitely, like you said, when you do these adaptations, this gives you the opportunity to, to... to make good what went wrong, whether King was adapting it or somebody else was adapting it. And they, it's so faithful, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, well, it, it suffers Ugh. from what I call the Hobbit syndrome. Yes. Where you take, Ugh. you take a book that's 200 pages and space it out over 10 hours. For yeah. The three Hobbit. movies. For this, the, 
book is about 130 pages um and I think that's what it was where I read it. Anyway. It's pretty – it depends on what editions you're reading, you know. But yeah. PDF edition. Um, PDF edition. PDF but, edition. It um, probably is 130 pages. Yeah, it's about 130 pages. But to then stretch that out for three hours, again, there's just so much that Un- could unforgivable. be cut. Any filmmaker needs to be able to – like I read this thing about what was it was a Ted Demi recently. Mm. Rest where in peace. Silence of the Lambs, R.I.P. Oh, you mean um, Jonathan Demi. Or Jonathan Demi, yeah. sorry, his son. Right? Wait, or oh, his yeah, father. Well, well, they're both gone, I think. Yeah. But anyway, he there was a scene where the FBI agent got fired. It was like a 10-minute scene. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they mm-hmm. so they ended up cutting it, and he really liked how it was filmed, but these other directors were like, you know what? You can take this out. And he's like, no, but we put so much into it. You know, it took forever I to think film. William Goldman saw yeah, that Yeah, William Goldman yeah. saw it and just suggested. He's like, take that out. And then he's like, yeah, took 10 minutes out, and it was hard. And it works, though, in the context of the movie. Yeah, 100%. and I think when it comes to editing, there's a phrase called kill babies. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. you got to kill mm. your babies because, like, yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm – somewhat of an amateur film editor and it's like you just have to do that you have to sack cut fat wherever possible and this like they left all the fat on all of it <laughs> well look, let's get into the our next section we're going to talk about the, the the crew behind this this film not the cast yet but the crew the airline crew as it were in a section we call once again oh actually this is a new section for the movie section <laughs> dairy public library Mike Allen, if you see hey, excuse me sir do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. Yo, Mike Hanlon, did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Get out. What a Excuse me, man. Okay, now, if it isn't clear, none of us like this movie at all. But I do want to give props to the director. I'll say why. Tom Holland is actually a very accomplished film writer and director. He's no, he's no fluke. I mean, I'll, let me break down some of his filmography. He wrote this really good, ahead of its time, uh, movie called uh, Cloak and Dagger from the mid-'80s with uh, Henry Thomas and Dabney Coleman. Kind of like a touching father and son action-adventure movie. Look into that if you haven't seen it. He also wrote, in my opinion, one of the greatest horror sequels of all time, Psycho 2. I mean, he did the impossible with that, in my opinion. You, you know, if you haven't seen Psycho 2, definitely check it out. It's very much a sequel, but it's very much its own thing. It has its own identity. It's, it's a little more comic, but it still feels like you're in the world of Psycho. But most importantly, I'll start from quote-unquote least to best. He directed a bunch of Tales from the Crypt episodes, including a couple of classics like uh, Lover Come Hack to Me with Amanda Plummer. Um, which I think is in the first season of that series. But this is the guy who who co-wrote and directed Child's Play, all right? And he wrote and directed Fright Night. Yes. So this isn't like some gun for hire. This is somebody who's got pedigree. He's been in the business for a long time. He was also an actor for a long time. He's in The Stand. He's in The Stand, too. He's one of the people in Vegas. You're right. And he's in this, too, but we'll talk about it. Which is kind of funny. I just want to say, so, you know, ABC was producing the stand in this around mm. the same time. So yeah. you know, they thought it'd be funny to go to different sets. And I wonder when he went to the stand, if he was just like, wow, the production value is so much greater here. Yeah. I d- That's what I want to talk about. Okay. Go ahead, Laura. Well, I mean, I, I just, uh, when I saw that he was the director of this miniseries, I, I was shocked because I'm like, how did Tom Holland direct this? He's like, Fright Night is one of my favorite movies of I all love time. It. Great. And he, the thing about his movies is that they're over the top and enjoyable and funny and, and wacky uh, and scary. You know, or they can be. Uh, so what the hell happened? I think what happened here is a couple things. Because if, if you had told me that Tom Holland directed this even, I would not believe you. But we, we have to go back in time, ah, like the Langoliers. <laughs> or, 
and look at what was happening on TV. This is before prestige TV. This is before you could mistake a TV show for a movie. I mean, just the, the look of it. I mean, I looked at the, the crew for this. The, the person who did the cinematography is Paul Maybaum, who has only ever worked in television. The person who did the music is Vladimir Harunzu. Nothing of note for this guy. He's uh, not, he, he didn't go on to like, do anything. There was no there was no pedigree behind this. Elevator music. It's yeah. so the, the it Casio keyboards terrible. are so bad. Um, now I will say Paul Maybaum's father, the cinematographer of this, his father wrote half the James Bond movies. Well, we could have used uh, some of the writing, the writing here. But here's the problem too: is I, I it, when you watch the structure of this, you just know that he had to make this movie. He had to make this 180 minutes. So there was not anything he could cut. If anything, like we were talking about the problems of the novella, you think it's stretched out there. You really have to stretch it out to make it 180 minutes. You know, like you said, if this was just a 90 minute movie, literally chopped in half, you could make like an intense experience here if you cut off some of the beginning, some of the of the middle, some of the end. But he was stuck in the confines of having to do a TV movie in 1995. And apparently they use up all the budget on the stand because none of that is seen here. It is bad. And even the special effects we we're talking before we were recording, Laura, even we knew in 1995, the special effects were awful. It wasn't like we looked back and went, Oh, that was pretty bad. It was bad back then too. Yeah. Like, like notably, like I was a 10 year old girl and I laughed at it. Like that's not good. Yeah. The tremors are, they look like the screensaver from windows 95 that yeah. you, nobody would put on their actual computer. It's, the funny thing is they were originally going to have them be puppets, mm. which would have been so much better. Yeah, I think always yeah. opt for puppets if possible. Yeah, I mean, like Pac-Man has better graphics the, than these things. <laughs> yeah. I like I was watching that. Uh, what's that Adam Sandler movie um, with the video game? Pixels. 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 It was kind of actually the special effects in that are obviously much better. But where the guy has sex with Qbert at the end. Oh, Qbert turns into a woman really? and they have children. So presumably that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, I, I, I always have to mention that whenever I have someone a lot brings of up questions pixels. that I don't want answered. Yeah. Yeah. Pixel pod. It sounds like so. He was trapped in the confines of, of of television. I mean, I can only say it so many times. You can only put your 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 stamp on a TV movie so much back in 1995. If he did this now, or if this was a movie, for example, it would have been a totally different thing. I think he was just he, I don't, this is what he had. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I still I think that there with the it miniseries and the stand miniseries they they feel like they made changes to the story, you know, to mm-hmm. like little things to adapt it for the time or for television. I, I feel like it was also a failure of the writers. I, did Tom Holland write it? He also, it was a straight adaptation by him only. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know what, why I, I feel like there were chances to improve on the source material or to, and I don't know if it was sort of a political thing going on behind the scenes with King. I have no idea, but it just feels like, why is this being so faithful? I think the difference between that between this movie and obviously, you know, it and the stand, especially is that the, the source material, the source material for those are so good. Well, yeah, it's so great. strong. Mm-hmm. And here it's like, here's the Langoliers. You're like, oh, have fun. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It'd be such you, a task to improve that for, for the full three hours. And obviously yeah, he I wasn't mean, able to do it. It was just did not work. Yeah, it's and just he, so humorless. He went on to direct thinner. He did, too, yeah. which we talked which is, about. You know, we actually interviewed him about Thinner and a little bit about this, and he did say about this is that you know he's he's you know he's proud for what as much as you can be proud for this, I guess. But he did say that they were on a real time crunch, and they ran out of money at a certain point. And like you said, they talked about the special effects, and 
this was it was so primitive at the time, but it was almost taken out of his hands at that point. You could yeah. see all that happening everything, behind the scenes. Everything went wrong mm-hmm. that could yeah. go wrong. It's crazy because there's really only three sets. There's the cabin of the airplane, which mm-hmm. it's not hard to film. There's the exterior of the airplane and then the inside of the airport. So it's it, I don't know how you can go over budget. And apparently that was the real airport in Bangor, Maine. It's yeah. A lot of it was filmed at their airport. So that wasn't even a set. Like it, it, I think he said it was during a busy season, too. And they were trying to work around that as well. Rent out a section. But, yeah, uh, that's so weird. Yeah, it's um, just, it's a failure. And we'll talk a little bit more right now about why it's a failure. Well, one thing I want to say, too, though, it's that, you know, we keep saying how it's overly long, and it would have worked as a Twilight Zone episode. It is. Yes. A, this whole thing is a Twilight Zone episode, really. Many of the criticisms, even back in 95, talk about that exact point. But this is just a, this is a, a like an episode of Twilight Zone that was expanded by, like, nine times the normal amount of a Twilight <laughs> right. Zone episode, you know? It's so fucking long. I hate to use too many expletives, but it's fucking long, folks. Sorry, and I've already dropped F-bombs about 800 times by well, my count. We can't make this onto the uh, the kids' iPods. Sorry, I, kids. I haven't cursed yet. Really? That's impressive. It's like a tick for me. Uh, yeah, me too, especially when I get angry about things. Um, I, I, I tend to curse a lot. The only major difference I noticed, though, and this is something that they did improve upon, is, like so I think somebody mentioned this, they got rid of the sleeping guy. Yeah. At least they cut one character. Yeah, they. It would have been 181 minutes if he was still in it. (laughs) From 11 characters to 10. And there's a King's Dominion that I'll mention later on that's very important because they cut that character. So a little teaser for a future section coming up here. All right, let's get to our next section here for the miniseries called You Know It, You Love It, Heroes and Villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! Okay, the good part about this section is that we don't have to get into too many details about the characters themselves. But let's talk about the performers who played these beloved characters from the Langoliers. Mm-hmm. Let's just start at the top. And I, I hope I'm not being hyperbolic. And maybe, maybe, maybe I'm a lone wolf here. But I think Bronson Pinchot is like excellent as Toomey. I know he's over the top. I know he's deranged. But he's, I feel like he's the only performance here that feels like a true effort is being put into a performance. Am I wrong? Am I maybe somewhat right? Am I am I just totally right? Hard agree. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. He chews the set more than Langoliers chew up time. Hmm. Where? Wow, wow, we were. It's actually very good. <laughs> no, he. It, it was good. I. He is memorable. Like he is the main. The reason I thought I sort of thought or looked forward to rewatching the miniseries was because my memories of him as a child. Like I really liked I, my, I always watched perfect strangers on mm-hmm. TGIF. And so I was excited to see Bronson Pinchot in something. And then he was just crazy. Um, and rewatching it, he's the only thing that makes it remotely worthwhile. It's so over the top and silly, but it's at least enjoyable to watch like the moment when he's uh, tied up and like ro- oh, yeah. rolling and he kind of like, and he, he puts on that sort of charm for a second. Like that's, you know, a performer right yeah. there. Yeah, having to react to CGI off-screen villains, I thought he did as good as he could have. Yeah. Um, his reactions seem, I mean, they're a little hokey looking back, but he's the only one that really seems committed and has a performance that stands out. And I do love the fact that he does a lot of audiobooks for Stephen King novels. No, he wouldn't. When I, I, I read talked uh, about this before. What is Eyes of the Dragon, yeah, that's right. he actually was the one that did the audiobook. And, you know, he's got a great voice and he does, you know, distinctive character voices. I think he gets... I, what was so fascinating, like you said, about watching this back in 1995, we only knew him as Balky, right? So mm-hmm. this is easily like the 180, right? This is totally different than anything that we had ever seen him in. I mean, even growing up, like I loved him in Beverly Hills Cop. He's like that flamboyant, is he a designer or something like that that Axel runs into? 
very, very funny in that. He was also in Risky Business. Yeah, but this is before he threw his career down by criticizing Tom Cruise you're right. and Denzel Washington. He yeah. said they're awful people to work with, which is not smart to say in Hollywood. Not, not, not here, but I, I do think he's a very good actor, and I think he's uh, he's he's just great. He's very creepy here. He, he, he goes very over the top, but there's also moments, specifically you were talking about, Laura, in that scene where he's being tied up talking to Laura and Dinah, where he does kind of go from being very quiet and kind of weary to manic and screaming and... I, whenever he's on screen, I'm actually not bored. Like yeah. the entire miniseries. If it was just following him. Exactly. Different experience. More him all the time. Um, also on the surreal life on VH1, if anybody remembers that. Oh, no. Which is very sad to I think about. I don't want to remember yeah, it's that. It's very sad. Okay. Next character as we move along here. Mark Lindsay Chapman as Nick. Did anybody recognize this actor? I recognized him. No. Growing up, I used to watch the old Swamp Thing TV series oh, on USA. Oh, right, yeah. He has a lot more hair in that. He's yeah. kind of like the villain of that of that TV series. He was in this 80s horror movie with Rod Steiger called American Gothic. It's like the cover is the American Gothic painting, uh-huh. but it's like a horror movie, you know? Not a very good movie. More importantly, and this is something I did not know, he's Chief Officer Wild in Titanic. What? Oh, he's yeah, the guy yeah, that yeah. shoots the guy who's getting too close or whatever and kind of regrets it. And that's him. Doesn't he end up killing himself? I think he's about to. Oh, no, he does kill himself. He, after regrets, that. Yeah. he regrets it. And he yeah. Lost himself. Um, that's that guy. So imagine this character, Nick, wearing a, a little hat. A little hat. <laughs> a little hat. Holding a little gun. So cute. And, and he's he actually quite good in Swamp Thing. I remember him kind of being a menacing villain. But like we said, everybody here is pretty bad except for I think there's a couple exceptions. But. This character is literally just the same as he is in the book. I mean, they didn't do any enhancements. He's pretty bad throughout the they, whole thing. I feel like he mellowed the caricature Britishness mm-hmm. a bit. Like, I, I was half expecting to hear, hear him come out with, like, a Cockney accent or something. But he, you know, he downplayed it a little bit. But the lines, some of the lines, you know, you couldn't really do anything with because they were verbatim from the book. Like, hitherto unexplored realms of pain. You know, just like, <laughs> what? Pip, pip, good say. I sent I the two of you that video at the very end where he's, the, the, the whole Daisy scene. Oh, it's so bad. But again, I think that's just an example of somebody who can't rise above the material and the material is so bad. Yeah. And you couple that with that awful score, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, too. Well, I would say with his portrayal, because in the book, when I read Nick, originally I thought he was like a man in his 60s. He seems a lot huh. more aged and like, you know, he talks about having bad knees and stuff. Yeah. Well, so, he's, he's been a, a he's super been spy, you know? Yeah. But so I thought the way that, you know, the guy kind of looks like, a, you know, second class Bond yeah, exactly. character. Um, I guarantee this guy auditioned for Bond yeah. in the 80s. I guarantee he did. And what's, mm-hmm. what's crazy, too, though, is the amount of dialogue that's lifted directly from the book into the show. Like, the screenplay is slavishly 40% faithful. the same, but Nick has one of the... I guess this would be kind of a pound cake, but he talks about how he's going to kill the <sighs> mistress of a man in yes. Boston, Mr. O'Banion. He says he's got a little piece of fluff on the side. Yeah, yeah, a nice piece right. of fluff. Nice like, piece of fluff. I was just, that made my blood hurt all. Like, <laughs> um, I've never know, heard, oh, never heard a woman referred to as fluff. But uh, do you know who his handler is at the beginning of the movie? The person that drops him off. It's Tom Holland. It's Tom Holland. Sorry to no, yeah, be uh, anticlimactic. Uh, please, about no. It's, <laughs> I mean, much like the film itself, very anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. The next character, this is somebody, once again, this, this movie was made in 1995. So these people, a lot of the people in this cast were real names on television shows, especially from the 80s and 90s. I'm not sure. Do you, were you familiar with Patricia Wedding before this movie? She plays Laurel. 
I, I know her face. I was watching this going like she looked really familiar to me, but I, I couldn't place her and well, I didn't look her up because I was too busy bitching about other parts of the pros. <laughs> you already thrown the book and, yeah, the, and I, your computer. There was the just wall. too much rage. I was like, I can't keep going down these holes. She well, for movie fans, of course. And I know Dan knows this. Um, she's the wife in City Slickers, <laughs> Billy Crystal's wife. Oh, man. Yeah. But more importantly, she was um, on 30 something which was an ABC show from the late 80s, early 90s, this Edward Zwick show. She won three Emmys for this. I say that because she is a good actress. But this is tough, right? This is, and this is only a couple years after um, 30-something. Not good. Not Once good. again, not rising above the material. Any, other, any thoughts on her? I mean, I've, I've got some other takes, but... Uh, I don't know. She's a good piece of love. She's she she a good piece of love. <laughs> the one thing I, I was grateful for, though, is that they did get rid of that inner monologue of her thinking that he's attracted because he's a bad boy. Like, I kind of wasn't as disgusted by the attraction in this, you know what I mean? Yeah, she. I mean, she seems less just... I, it's still just not great. I mean, but no, it's, no. Ju- it's just... When it's just the lack of something that improves it, it's not good. <laughs> it's like the yeah, the lowest common denominator. Right. Grateful for the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. But d- don't worry, everybody. If you haven't seen the movie, they do still have that great scene while Dinah's bleeding to death in the plane of, hey, maybe when we get to Boston, we can go out for a dinner. You know, like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and she kind of smiles to herself like, hey, Oh, she's also, if you notice this part where they're trying to decide who's going to, you know, fly the plane, she just willingly says, well, what about Albert? And what about Don Gaffney? I'm like, Fuck you. What about me? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, I like how Bethany actually in that, she's like, all right, somebody volunteered. Shut the fuck oh, up. Oh, God. Like, we got it. First, sorry, I'm sorry you're not going to be able to go on the dinner date with this jerk. First curse word, by the way. Oh, I, see, I put, I, I put the seed in your mind, though. I, I blame myself. Um, the swear seed. The swear seed. Next character. This is this guy is a Stephen King regular. Um, he was best known for St. Elsewhere from the 80s, which launched the careers of you mentioned him earlier. Somebody Bronson Pinchot hates Denzel Washington. Yeah, there you as a matter of fact, David Morse plays Brian. Yep. Um, I love him from The Rock. He's in The Rock. In The Rock. I always thought he has very sad eyes. Well, you know what like, they say about The Rock, right? The Rock's a tourist attraction. <laughs> um, thank no, you very much. No, but, but he, uh, you know what I mean? Like he, in The Rock too, he's just like, it's over, Frank. Like we've lost. He, and he does he, have a very resigned, and that, because he's in, think about the Stephen King movies he shows up and he's in The Green Mile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where he's second in command to Tom Hanks. He's also the grown-up version of Bobby Garfield in Hearts in Atlantis. Mm. And he does the audiobook for Revival, one of my favorite latter-day Stephen King yeah. Stephen King books. So He's really tall, too. I didn't notice yeah. that, but I looked it up, and he's like six foot four. And Taller it's funny than how height doesn't really show up on film sometimes. Well, I think when you're giving a low-energy performance mm-hmm. uh, like he gives here, but once again, there's only so much you can do with this character. He's yeah. literally performing the character as written. Yeah, I mean, because David Morris... Uh, he's one, I mean, he's one of those actors. Whenever he shows up, I really enjoy seeing him. I'm thinking of him in like Dancer in the Dark, and he's he's plays just such a loathsome oh, figure. Is he yeah. the husband in that? He's the one that basically, yeah, she she ends up killing him, and that's the reason. Spoiler: Dancer in the Dark. Spoiler alert: Twenty uh, year anniversary yeah, alert. Yeah. Second Lars von Trier reference too. Right, I love right. it. I and love I mean, it. That, and that he he was so loathsome in that. And I mean, he really has range. He can play really lovable characters, really despicable characters. There was some. Shia LaBeouf movie where he plays, I think that he plays like a serial killer. So I just have these huh. me- these vague memories of him just giving these really intense performances. And then in this, he's just kind of. But again, he, there's a few points. I think like when he was <laughs> there, there's a part where like the Langoliers are like coming at the plane, and he's like, 
get out of here. Oh, he's just like <laughs> waving them off. Yeah, like, yeah. I can't see. And, and it's just like, I mean, but again, like, what are you supposed to do with this as a performer? But it's again, it's another example of who knows what potential some of these people have. And like, this is how we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can't blame the casting director. Well, we'll get to how you can blame the casting director yeah. in a little bit. But um, he's also really good on Trimé. Did you watch Trimé? Oh, I, I never watched it. that. Yeah. He's really good. He's just uh, he's a local cop in New Orleans. He's, he's he's like I say, he's a good actor, but there's just there's nothing you can do with some of these characters. Yeah, there's some of his reaction shots where the tremors are, or not the tremors. <laughs> the Lang- I'm going with the it. Langoliers are quickly approaching and they're sort of climbing the staircase back into the airplane, and everyone's <laughs> sort of like dumbstruck and frozen, and he has to be like, "All right, let's get up there." But uh, it's such a delayed reaction from all of them that you can tell the director must have been like, all right, imagine these tennis balls are coming after yeah. you. Exactly right. They didn't. I felt like the reactions were and there's even parts where like um, the plane is shaking as they're like landing or something. And like everybody's freaking out except Dean Stockwell. And he's just sitting in the corner, like looking depressed. And you're like, somebody wasn't giving everybody the most clear cues, you know. It wasn't method acting. I think he was depressed for a reason. <laughs> um, all right. The next character, Fast Gun in the West. At least the, the fastest Hebrew gun in the West, I should say. Mm, yeah, you got to um, clarify it. Christopher Collette as Albert. Pretty pretty awful performance here by Chris. Oh, it's un- it makes an unbearable character twice as unbearable. I, I, I've got a a, a a misery section for later on, but sorry, Laura, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, that's just it. Like, just like the, uh, <laughs> they're on the plane. I mean, I guess this, could I, should I save this for misery with, yeah, the, with the beers? And yes, the, yeah. I, I think we're on the same page yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the soda is very yeah, good Yeah, oh, I, I, I got the verbatim later on, <laughs> yeah, but do you know what he's from? No. Well, he's actually in a pretty good movie with Peter Weller from the 80s called Firstborns about this guy who um, marries these kids, Mom, Terry Gars in it. Mm-hmm. And he's a drug dealer, you find out, and he's they're trying to get him out. He's pretty good in that. For horror fans, though, he is the kid who Angela kills at the end of Sleepaway Camp and has in her in her lap. Yes. Oh, wow. oh I, I just watched that too. That's on, Christopher uh, Collette. Yeah. Shudder. Joe Bob did a review. Yeah. That's so I knew I recognized his face. So yeah, all the horror fans probably recognize him as the poor boy who got his head chopped off before it's revealed. Oh man. She's a girl. And sleepaway camp ends problematic at the time. Um, I, I will say too, it's time wasn't as problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but his character in this too, he has like a graphic T in the book. He's supposed to have a Hard Rock Cafe shirt. I couldn't make out. I the think text. it says like Mozart on something like that. Oh, Beethoven. I, 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 yeah. I laughed really hard when I saw that. It's like, did you know he plays music? Like, yeah, let's put him in. But, the but in movies too, you're not. You're supposed to have like solid colors or patterns because it doesn't pick up on camera quite. Especially well. that TV camera yeah. from the mid nineties. And watching it, the, you know, the YouTube version looks like it was filmed on a potato. So oh. I yeah. Just, uh, and I, I want to say also one other thing about his wardrobe. Um, I don't know if I buy the the Bethany romance purely because he's wearing black socks with white sandals, or I mean, or white white socks with black sandals. I just spoonerismed that, but it, he either way, it's bad. It's bad. It was so bad that it caused me to invert the color and see everything like an X-ray. I um, like um, Randall. We were talking about this, and Randall said, oh, he's like one of those guys, like the hot guy playing a dweeb in a movie. Like, they gave him glasses yeah. and like kind of frizzied his hair up a little bit. Like, yeah. Totally. Total nerd. Um, a tough go for Chris in this movie. Some really... You want to talk about... He, like, he like sunk below the material somehow in a lot of ways. I don't feel bad about saying this. He's, he's, look, he, he's been in movies I haven't. He's fine. Yeah, it could have been... Um, he could have had a cameo in a soap opera. That was the quality of his That's better than me. You know, yeah. That's fine. Um, here's somebody who I have a deep affection for because of Quantum Leap. And years later, yes. Battlestar Bal- Galactica. And Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, incredible. My favorite character in the movie. Love, and David Lynch's Blue Velvet, incredible. 
also was in a lot of, he was in a good, great Twilight Zone episode. He was a great character actor for years. Anyway, Dean Stockwell as Jenkins. I think he actually does give a pretty good performance here for the most part. Once again, if you based on the script he was given, you know, it's, it's, it's fine, right? It's, it, you compare it to some of these other characters or yeah, performances. Exactly. It's like within the context. It's Once fine. again, <laughs> LCD, not sound system, but lowest common denominator. And, you know, <laughs> it's uh, any, any comments on Mr. Stockwell's performance? Yeah. I think he brought the best acting chops into this. Um, He's got the most dialogue, right? Yeah, because I mean, he has to. He's the one that gives the monologue about where he names the three different possible points in time they could have gone back into. Because that's what you need at that moment was more examples of what the yeah. past is. And it's funny too that Quantum Leap is a show that's so focused on time travel as oh, well. So he's, you know, the character he plays in that is almost similar. It's this sort of wise overseer that kind of sees the big picture. He informs. The character of Sam, what's going on, yeah. And he's also, once again, he was very well-known, especially at this time. Like, yeah. these were all pretty well-known people. And, a good casting choice, I thought, for that character. And then a little trivia on him for mm. my Blue Velvet fans. Ooh. So Frank is the only character that curses in that movie, except for Ben, who is played by Dean Stockwell. I didn't notice that. He's, at one point, he's like, toast to, say here's to your fuck, Frank. He's like, very well. Here's to your fuck, Frank. It's, but it's almost like it's just because he was asked to do it. He would never do it. But know? he's almost the boss of Frank because he's yeah. the only guy that can calm him down. So you think how crazy Frank is in that movie and Dean Stockwell's character is above him in craziness. So <laughs> I love Blue Velvet. I it's love that movie. One of my favorites also. <laughs> um, I could talk about Blue Velvet all day and I probably have. Uh, next character. Great actor. I forgot he was in this. Frankie Faison yeah. as yes. Gaffney who gives a little more agency than he is an example. Maybe somebody who's better on in the miniseries than he's in the, in the book. Yeah, and I think it's just because Frankie Faison, who plays Barney in Silence of the Lambs, one of my yes. favorite appearances of him, um, he just, I don't know, he's got this warmth to him, and I just, every time he shows up, I'm just like, oh, hello, and I want to hug him. Uh, there's one moment where I think he looks, I can't, he, he like looks over at someone who's sleeping, and it's like one of the only moments of like genuine comedy in the miniseries because he kind of gives just this little side eye to like somebody that's sleeping or something. I, and it's just like, oh, there was a moment of genuine humanity captured yes. on film that didn't feel like it came out of a cardboard box. Like, and that's Frankie Faison. Like he's just, I, lo- I like him a lot. I, I love Frankie Faison. I think he's actually, I, I kind of felt a little, I felt sad that he was leaving us when he gets stabbed in the back of the neck. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's like, why have all the guys to get, sta- you know? And yeah. It, the trope of the black guy right. dying to save white I like people. how they actually, because ha- he's not black in the novella. Yeah. I was like, oh, good uh, choice. Oh, wow. Like, let's have some diversity. But I, but I noticed the other, he's the only black character in the entire um, movie. And there's a shot mm-hmm. of the board of directors, all white. Yeah. Older well, that's, that's, a, that's a sign of the times. No, no. Yeah, and I, I get, you know, what they're trying, but yeah. it's just weird that hey, he's the only. Changed. Guy and he gets killed about halfway through the movie. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's very. But I always think of him from the Wire. And oh, of course, the obviously wire. the only character that's appeared in every uh, Hannibal Lecter, Silence of the Lambs. He's in Manhunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. he is. He's Barney the, was yeah. it Barney Matthews? Well, he's not. He's not Barney in no Manhunter. Man Man he's something but, different. But in Red Dragon, I think he in the, Hannibal yeah. too. He shows up. I think yeah. right. He's yeah. the only character that's been in every or the only actor yeah. that's been in all. I think he's also in Do the Right Thing. I think he's one of the guys on is the, uh, oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure he is. <laughs> but uh, in, in The Wire, actor. though, he's like Burl, I believe. Commissioner Burl. He's a commissioner. He's he's, he's great in that. Yeah, another noticeable face. Um, terrific. Okay, and now we're getting into some tough territory, everybody. Uh, this is a quick rundown, okay? I don't, like, I don't want to spend too much time on these people. Kimber Riddle, great name. It is, it is a good name. Plays Bethany. Uh, oh, I, I liked her. Uh, 
attractive, sure. Wawa Wawa. Wawa Wawa Kimber. Speaking of Wawa, there was a lot of. I just have my notes for her as she says things like a nose old, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and like whoa, and totally or like you know tubular. And I, I, I'm not going to be mean here. Once again, I've never been in anything. I've never been in many series in my life. I've never been in a movie. You know, but I will say she never did anything again after this. Unfortunate, because again, who knows what her potential was? Given like, if you watched all of these performances in a vacuum and you never saw anything else that people were in, oh yeah, no you way. would be like, these people mostly suck. You know, who knows what untapped potential laid within that riddle? Ah, very well, well done there. You give yourself a bow. That was very good. I'm, no, um, I won't. <laughs> uh, we're all about the bad jokes here. Trust me. Um, you know what's funny? I, she was absolutely true to the character, though. I wouldn't. I didn't feel like that's not how that character was written. I was like, nah, that's unfortunately how that character was written in the novella too. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I guess, I guess in the novella she's a little more stoned out. They kind of emphasize that. She I thought she's taken, kind of stoned out in the beginning of, of the movie, but then she maybe sobers up. She sobers up. Yeah, maybe it's some science behind that too. Baxter Harris, who plays Warwick, he looks familiar to me. He's not a very well known actor. He's definitely one of those quote unquote that guys, you know, yeah. in the movies. He is Philip Seymour Hoffman's father in Scent of a Woman. He's the one that's sitting next to him in the movie, like, don't say anything, you know. Hiding in Big Daddy's pocketbook. Yes, he's the Big Daddy. Uh, not a lot to say about him. And Larry, Craig, fuck you too. Um, I love that speech. I watched that on YouTube to pump myself up. Uh, hoo-ah. <laughs> hoo-ah. But not a snitch. But not a snitch. I'm in the dark here. We can go on forever. I'm sorry. I apologize. I take a flamethrower to this. <laughs> Whoa, it's getting emotional now. More emotion in these imitations than half the performances in the Langoliers. Correct. Hey, we we got to mention this, though. Who was the chairman of the board in Toomey's Hallucination? Hmm. Who was that guy? I think he might have been Stephen King. It was Stephen King. Indeed, it was. Stephen King with a mustache. Right? Oh, that was, too. yeah, seeing him yeah. with yeah. a mustache. No that beard. Was the Very most, strange. That was the scariest moment of, of the film. I, I started screaming Runaway, not from the Langoliers, but from that... Uh, that face with that, those glasses on top of it. Tell us how much money you made us. <laughs> I lost it all. God, I really do love yeah, Pinchot on that. I, yeah, I do he's, love him. He's, he's so, so wild, enjoyable. man. It's a wild ride. This next section, believe it or not, we're going to talk about some things we didn't like. <laughs> what? <laughs> Once again, believe it or not, this is going to happen. This is a section in the, for our movie episodes we call Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing... <laughs> Imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. All right, once again, let's get specific here in terms of specific moments we did not like. Like, like, like we haven't mentioned many already <laughs> that we did not like in the adaptation of the Langoliers. Who wants to go first? Um, I'll do more of a stylistic one. Sure. Um, there's so many Dutch angles in the cinematography. Every camera is down and slanted and looking up. The Stephen King scene you mentioned, mm-hmm. it's just, it's such a cheap way to stylize. It's basically anything with Toomey to kind of intimate like, oh, he's, he's crazy kilter. here. Yeah, yeah, but, it, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, a little bit goes a long way and it's just every other shot in this. I'm sure Holland was like, what can I possibly do here to make, just to make it not look choice. like a TV show? Yeah. I know. Good. I mean, I just have a lot of general complaints, like um, yep. a very small nitpicky one. This is the most giant airplane interior of all time. The ceilings are as high as a cathedral's. Um, that's a beside the point. The let's see. I, I don't know. I don't even know where to begin. Um, I got something we I can start off with here. Ready? Check this out. I'll do some Foley work here, too. Check it out. Ready? 
Gentlemen, the cola is very, very good today. Yes, yes, that is, I want to, I, I genuinely want to cut myself, like, after thinking about that, and I watched it And they all willingly. just start cracking up. Yeah, they're all like, oh. I mean, it really is David Wayne, like, it's like that. Oh, <laughs> man, it's so bad. Albert, take a bow. Oh, oh God. Um, I have another complaint yeah, that I just recalled. Um, the omission of the dreams, I get most of it, like, we didn't, they're not going to do, like, a country western gunslinger scene. Um, but the fact that they didn't include uh, Captain Engel's dream at the top, like it's something yeah. to me that really establishes the tone in the book of like the shooting stars only and the crack on the plane. And again, it might have been a budgetary thing, but it's just like there were no attempts to set the mood at all in this damn thing. Besides a few like Dutch angles, like there's just the art direction is so uninspired. Everything is so plain. It's just, ugh. but like you said, it couldn't have cost that much money to have like weird lighting and have an extra slash his wife, just having her hand over a crack. And right. So, with some and lights behind it. Like, especially when King kind of says it's the whole premise of like how <laughs> the story, the, the origin story. of the story. Yeah. And like, also how about the fact that they definitely had time to do that. Yeah. This thing's 180 minutes. You couldn't have a, a 30 second hallucination or a nightmare. Right. You could have cut some of the like 1800 lines of unnecessary dialogue and had the dream sequence. Like, of, of taking staircases across tarmac yeah, for five I minutes. Think if they actually had given the characters all dream sequences, it might have been more interesting because they each have kind of, you know, the thoughts in the book. Like Dinah could have had, I guess in a way, she kind of has this mystical sequence when she sees through Tumi. Tomi. Tumi. To me, Craig, it's Craig, not a to me. <laughs> My God, I just realized something. We did not talk about Dinah. Oh, we no. skipped over. This is gonna be. A, we're gonna have a special mini episode within a special mini section within this section, in which we're gonna have to talk about Dinah Bellman. Oh God, damn it. yeah, a, it's, it's uh, um, it's kind of. Yeah, I, mean, I, I always, it's hard to criticize like children. Yeah, I think it's fun, but <laughs> like real life it is. I'm saying in movies. It's it's um, Wait, you're going to take that again, Grandma. No, no I'm just I'm hence, I'm like, I uh, don't know what to say about this performance. Uh, uh, I mean, well, yeah. Played by Kate Maberly, who I will say kind of retired from acting, but uh, has become a pretty good producer over the years. I think she won a major award not too many years ago. She's been I consider like an up and coming producer slash filmmaker in this industry. So she definitely found her way. She's like the Sofia Coppola of this movie. Like, yes. you know, not a great performer maybe, but uh, she's still found a great footing in Hollywood, hopefully for years to come. We, we wish the best, obviously. I can't believe you found a way to compare this movie to The Godfather. I found, well, The Godfather 3 is a little closer. Right? Best one. Uh, easily, easily the best Michael one. Scott says this is his favorite. Um, but, you know, it's... What do we want to say? It's not good. But again, again, it's very faithful to the book, right? Yeah. And and the whole thing with her character, I, she just, again, is serving a purpose. You know, she's there to have these psychic premonitions and to move the plot along. And then, and then to get stabbed, you know, and be the the dying child, which adds to the drama. You know, the, the character itself, what is there to say? Like, there's just nothing below the surface besides that, you know, she's blind everything is so on the nose it's like she's struggling and vulnerable because she's blind but she has a secret power like a, a sense to make up for her lacking sense which yeah, is the I, same problem with yeah the book and i think they didn't yeah. they didn't milk to the fact that she finally got to see you know kind of through Toomey, and that's like you know the whole point let's she was, talk she was, about that she's on this flight so that she can restore her vision and in a way she did you want to talk about stretched out sequences when Toomey sees her appear yeah. oh 
Oh my god! You that, need to hurry up. Let's. It's like fifteen minutes. I felt like it really spinning with that. And she kept saying his name like Craig, 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 Craig. Well, she was Krieg. pronouncing it Craig. I think Krieg. she's from the UK, but that's still it would be Craig. It was just bothering like me, maybe because the scene was going on and on, and she kept saying it, and I was like, "Fucking Craig!" <laughs> it felt like Craig. Just tell me get the fucking tarmac and get him out there, get him eaten. Um, it's a tough one. Anyway, sorry back, but. But honestly, that's one of my nightmares and dreamscapes, too, I guess. I wasn't a, a, a big fan of that child performance. Another nightmare the for me is the closing bad. credits look like the Family Matters credits. It's yeah. like a yellow okay. font. This is – um, okay, we talked about how bad the CG is. I don't think we have to really go into that too much more, right? It's, oh, it's awful, right? It's, it's really bad. So, it's like, yeah, you're beating the dead horse at this okay. point. Yeah, yeah the, like, the ADR is also pretty bad, too. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about the freeze frame ending. Yeah, the freeze, it's important. Oh, my God. I think about, I've seen thousands of movies in my life. You know, I have. It's the fact. And I've seen a lot of TV. We've all seen a lot of TV shows and movies. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not speaking for myself here. Is there a worse final shot that you can think of in anything? Than a group jump at the air. They're all sort of holding hands. They all jump. And say yay. And freeze frame. Yeah, the final word spoken is yay. And also, just before they run, you hear her say, I'm, I'm so, so happy. happy. <laughs> yeah, it, that, and that's a, is that ADR'd in? I can't I even, don't know. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. If, if they decided they had to ADR that in, they're like, oh, we need, we need, well, let's come back, gotta come back and do some ADR because we don't really know what the emotion's not reading on camera. Like, oh, what are you feeling at this it's moment? We're out of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the, the, there's like a thing, you know, there's survivor's remorse that's supposed to kick in once you actually escape the dangerous situation. It's, they, they've lost not only hundreds of passengers. I looked up, like, the capacity yeah. of that plane is like 300 people. They've lost Nick. They lost a little girl to a stabbing. He's still mourning the death of his ex-wife. And Don, Don Gaffney, don't forget Don Gaffney. Yeah, Don, <laughs> poor stabbed in the yeah. neck and left for death. So they land, and I get that they're happy to be back in the present. But, but overwhelmingly it's happy? more like relief, not like sheer joy. I yeah, don't, I don't, is it like it's that exuberance. They get, yeah, and if, if, just to play the devil's advocate momentarily, the experience of going forward in time was supposed to give them some kind of high, like the fact that they just saw time catch up or whatever... I think that needed a little more clarification, Agreed. especially in the miniseries, because it feels so bizarre. Well, this is very faithful to the book. I mean, mm-hmm. the book ends very much in a similar. They don't actually. He doesn't actually write out. They jumped then, in then unison. There's a freeze you frame. Know, a freeze frame. And, and then yellow names come up. Yeah, it was weird. Um, but oh my, it really is awful. And something that I'll definitely. I actually recorded it. I'll put it on Instagram, and so it'll just loop forever. I, I, I timed it perfectly, so it's right when it freeze frames, it starts up again, and they freeze frame. Oh, you have to check that out if you guys haven't seen it's the movie. Like, and, I, and I will say this. Once again, it's hard to disconnect it from all the years that have gone by and, and knowing what the movie is. But I remember watching the miniseries, and I was still kind of holding out hope the first time. To yeah. the very, like, well, maybe this will have a – this has been such a Twilight Zone episode. Maybe it will have a great twist ending, you know? And it just ends with that executive producer – Richard Rubenstein, by the way, did a lot of George Romero movies back in the day. That was his big thing. I should have mentioned that earlier on. It's awful. That's all I have to say about it's it. It's, so it's laughable. And I don't know. I can't imagine anybody defending it. And um, it's 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 brutal. I'll, I'll, I'll defend one thing. And in the ending, not in the ending, <laughs> but in the climax. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'll start with the insult. So there's terrible CGI for the actual rip. It kind of looks like a clam or like vaginal. It's supposed to be like that, the yeah. birthplace of you know the. The imagery there is pretty. It's on the nose on. once yeah. again. Yeah. Even Nick has like a monologue talking about how what this could possibly mean, like a sperm to the egg. Yeah. Through the birth canal. Um, but there's a part that I enjoy where Nick, 
at one point is just like, oh my God, this is beautiful. It's he's seeing colors that no man has seen before mm-hmm. and he's just mesmerized. And it kind of reminded me of the movie Sunshine, the Danny yeah, Boyle film, yeah. where when you actually do get a glimpse directly at the sun, it just you're awestruck. Literally it's, blows it's your something mind. that yeah, it literally blows your mind. It's the last thing you're gonna see. And I thought that was actually kind of cool the way yeah. Nick captured that, because he's just like, My God, it's beautiful. I I feel like they undercut it a little in the miniseries by first having David Morse say it's beautiful. And it's like, mm. can't, can't just let him give the one line that actually kind of works. Like, can we get everybody else in the cockpit to see how beautiful this is before yeah. they go to sleep? Blind, uh, girls, blind girl says it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Anything else? I'm this sure that I'm sure we'll probably mention some more negative things before we close out, but that's all I've got. Personally. Yeah, did, did we have any positive? Did we have, or we have in a section where we say I had one positive thing to say. Well, I'm very glad you mentioned that because we're going to move to our next section, very, which is called the cemetery. Very good. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground. Beyond that cemetery, I've got a few things here, and they are all Toomey specific. I'll name the first Same. one. I kind of like. I mean, it's definitely a cheap, cheap effect for the time. I like that scene in the in the uh, the moment where Toomey is looking at them, and, and you see them through his eyes. That's the, what I had written down too. Right? I actually thought that was one thing that was invented for the miniseries because they. I mean. In the book, they just say they, you know, uh, we all look like monsters to him, but they don't really specify. Yeah, you know. So I, I think they say was, trolls in the in the in the novella, but this mm. they just have it as yeah. So, but I liked it was like a nice little flourish, and it was actually kind of creepy looking, like the melted faces. Like I thought that was actually effective. Yeah, like literally the only thing. <laughs> I agree, and and the lighting it reminded me of kind of like a creep show type thing, where it's like that weird blue blue red lighting on those. On what, yes. he, on what he's saying. I kind of like that. I mm-hmm. thought that was a good... And they didn't keep milking that. That's, that's the only time you really see that, too. So, mm-hmm. anyway, that's my take on that. Anything else? I think that is the only good thing I wrote down. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't... Was, it's bad, man, right? It's bad. It, it, it was... It just felt... It felt so dated. And when you consider The Stand was made at the same time, and the quality of that film versus this... It's know, a frustrating watch. Same channel. Yeah. Presumably a lot of the same, you know, gears were moving to get those made. And it's just... It just fails on every level. Exactly. But I, I think the point you made earlier, though, is like when the source material is so poor. <laughs> you do. You know, I have one note here. Too. Garbage in, garbage out. Here's something that I was also horrified by to find out. This miniseries, with, you take out the commercials, it's exactly 180 minutes. It's three minutes longer than The Godfather. Oh. Lol. Keep that in mind, folks. Three minutes longer than The Fucking Godfather. I, I really think right. I wasted... So much time watching this. We, we all said yeah. we had trouble getting through it. But, I, you know, the, the quality, moral, the, the wonderful podcast that's coming out of it, the informative podcast is, but, is incredible. But in between, I watched Brightburn, the Deadwood movie. Oh, yeah. And one other film just because I couldn't I just could not get through this in one sitting. I, I shared my, my fury online. I mean, I, I broke it up into, I think, it ended up being four different sections. Thank God. I tried to watch it all in one sitting and I kept falling asleep and then having to wake myself up and rewind by about 10 minutes well God, i'm happy you were able to wake up in our world because what if you had woken up in in the world of the miniseries that i would be trapped in forever Oof, mm-hmm. horrifying i guess if you had to be a character in this which character would you be i thought about this i would probably want to be nick because he gets all the the, the hot babes apparently <laughs> yeah. for no reason yeah i guess nick i mean yeah he's the one or uh the 
Wait, Nick? He dies. Oh, Nick Hopewell. No, I, yeah. I was thinking, I think I would be Albert because, you know, he's got a bright future ahead of him. Um, he plays an instrument. Hot, hot girls inexplicably make out with him despite how lame he is. Um, you know, or Bethany, because again, like once she gets cleaned up, like she's uh, she's young, she's got. I'm just going purely on the trajectory of how much like um, life expectancy they have after this. That's all. Good point. Bethany probably has the longest to live. So date Nick, marry Albert. Ah, mm, yes. Mm, I'm trying to think. Fuck I, Warwick. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's hungry. He's hungry. Yeah, fuck I, I, Dean I, I, Stockwell. All right. Um, um, yeah, I guess I, I would pick Dean Stockwell just because he seemed like he was kind of bored during the production. I would also pick Nick because I wouldn't want to live after you this. You just want to be James Bond. That's what. <laughs> Absolutely. I've been, yeah. I've been saying that for years. All right. Let's get out of the cemetery because I know I said I was full earlier, but I'm getting a little hungry again. Next section, pound cake. After all you've been talking. Everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. You know, aside from the really lame romance novel dialogue, especially at the very end between Nick and Laurel. Not a lot of pound cake going on, but didn't you say you had something, Dan? Or was it just about, maybe it was just we were talking about the novella. Um, I think I got my fluff comment in. I'm going to start referring to women as fluff on the Smart. Side. I think they're going to love it. I no. think it's a great move. Please don't. I think it's great a pretty, deal of woman. pretty good deal. Oh, they, they love that too, apparently, right? Is that right? Confirmed? No, that was a joke. Oh, is it? Oh, it was a joke. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a joke earlier. Okay. Please. Again, everybody, please. Please no. We're, we're, we're funny people on the podcast. Well, look. I guess I wasn't as hungry as I thought I was. Yeah, yeah. well, they also sanitize all the things from the book that would have potentially qualified. Like, they're not going to comment about farts. They're not going to pull a dildo out of a plane seat, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, although that would have been really funny if they kept that in on ABC. I, I, one thing I will say, so the stuff disappearing is sort of inconsistent. So inconsistent. Because there, there's, like, pins and people's knees that show up, a dildo, but why would the purse not be there? Why is there no clothing? At least Left Behind got that right. I like to leave my dildo out when I fly um, cross-country. You know, it's like my cell phone. I got to have my, my phone in one hand for the podcast and then my dildo in the other. And if you go if you go to the bathroom, you know what seat is yours when yeah, you go back. Oh, like, my dildo's there. No one's going to steal my seat. And one, and one thing that kind of dates it... <laughs> Uh, there's knives, which is kind of funny because now oh, yeah. you really Forget can't it. get them through airport security. If, if this was the David Wayne version, there'd be like oh, a knife, a machine gun, like, you know. Under seats <laughs> fall, flying out of right. the luggage. A stick of TNT. All right, well, listen, let's let's get on to our next section here. I'm, I'm full. Let's go to a section we call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. I've got one thing here because a couple of things were also mentioned in, in the novella, like the 11, 22, 63, mm-hmm. I think, and some other things. And a lot of the actors here, like David Morrison, things pe- appearing in other. So what's, yeah, exactly. what's the other thing? This is fun. Now, because they got rid of that sleeping character, keep thinking about this. They're on flight 29 and there are 10 characters in this book. 29 minus 10 equals 19. Stephen King's favorite number, 19. It's a stretch, but yeah. It's a stretch and a half, but we had to have something for this category, and damn it, I pulled it off. You checked that box. <laughs> All right, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> let's um, let's take a second here and give our final thoughts for the 1995 miniseries. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. Said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Once again, 
because this is so slavishly or slavishly, however you want to pronounce it. Slavish. Slavishly faithful, slavishly, darling. Slavishly. Faithful to the book <laughs> in every way. I'm going to also give this one and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses because Pinchot is great. And I think that does give it a little bit of a of a string of a balloon, just a little longer of a string. I can't give it the full the full one. I'll give it a one and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. Any other comments I have to say, rewind about 45 minutes and they're the same as the book, Laura. Yeah, you're right. You know, I wanted to give this one bright red Pennywise clown nose, but I'm going to four pincher just for him. I thought you were going to say four bright red Pennywise four, clown yeah, yeah, no, I, I Total paused, four bagger. I paused at the wrong moment. Uh, just, <laughs> just for Pincho, just for old Brownson, I got to give it one and a half because... Like, he put a lot of effort into that performance, and it's literally the only thing that makes it watchable. Agreed. Dan, um, take us I think home. my review is... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'd be doing with my agent's contract if he... Oh, yeah, I like this. Film. Behind, um, inside baseball. <laughs> I got to give it one and a half bright red Pennywise clown nose. So slightly better. Slightly better just Bella. because there's moving pictures on screen, and it's interesting at times. <laughs> Uh, versus a novel just not going anywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a disaster. Everyone should be ashamed who was involved in this. Yeah, I, I'm, shame. I'm a huge Stephen King fan, but this just is, it's it's every quality from his books that I don't like stewed together into one shitty crock. Into a visual medium. Yeah, and then yeah. the fact that it's also a miniseries, so it has that touch of just lesser than quality of a feature film. It all comes together marvelously. I guess this, the fact that it's one of the worst CGI sequences Ooh, of all time yeah. makes it interesting. Yeah. Um, as a novelty, like it's just, it's funny that there's some great YouTube clips of it. Yeah. It yeah. makes for some great memes and yeah. And as we'll show later on some great videos. So, but like, cause I, you know, I'm, I'm critical of a lot of CGI and film now, you know, it, yeah, it, but it's the uncanny Valley of, Oh, it just yeah. looks fake. But you just imagine Tom Holland finishing the film and being like, all right, let's get the boys to uh, we'll you know, the we'll design department. We'll fix it in post. Yeah, we'll <laughs> fix it in post. And then. And what a turn of events for Mr. Tom Holland. Well, we did it. We never have to watch oh, the Langoliers ever again until we, we reunite when we're in our 60s and have a, a 25th anniversary of yeah, this episode. When we wake up chained to a radiator and someone. <laughs> Comes out on a little tricycle and says, guess what? Get, look what I found on Daily Motion. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and Justin, you know what? Mm. Next time you drive. Oh. oh. Hey, maybe next time I'll get flying lessons. <laughs> oh, you guys, yeah. I'm so happy. <laughs> Yay. Freeze frame. It was easy when we did it. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you, everybody, for once again listening to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. If you've just discovered our podcast or have been enjoying the witty banter and invaluable information drops for years now, please be sure to leave us a review on wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next week to discuss the second novella in the Four Past Midnight Collection, Secret Window, Secret Garden. So until then, long days and pleasant Pleasant nights. Bye.
Consequence Podcast Network.